Okay, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day. Thank you that it's a day you've made. We rejoice. We're glad in it. We just commit our time to you here. Help us to appreciate you and honor and worship you. And uh, thank you for your watch care over us. Thank you for your shepherding in our lives. Thank you for your faithfulness. We pray for David as he shares your word. Uh, Just use it to remind us, to teach us, challenge us, convict us, and help us to be more like the Lord Jesus. Pray for Dr. Nunez and anybody else that's teaching right now. Just encourage them as they share your word. So again, we thank you, Father, for the time here. Just commit it to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, briefly, um, we were gone about a month and three days, did uh, 5,000 miles of traveling, and I don't know how many beds we slept in, over a dozen. Um, God is good. Uh, we made this trip because we haven't seen these churches up north in about four years, so we figured it was time to get around and give everybody an update of what we've been doing. So it was good to catch up with the churches and um, got taken out to eat a lot. And I would say this, this is the first time we've ever slept in a dollhouse. Serious. Uh, We were in central Pennsylvania, one of our churches, and one of the couples there bought a bunch of land and they had log cabins on, I mean, original log cabins on this thing that they had fixed up. And we stayed in one of those log cabins they called it the dollhouse. So that was interesting, but just a very unique place. And I would recommend if you want to get out of the way and have fun, uh, go to this place. But anyway, and then another time in New York, we stayed at a, uh, basically a mansion that was 240 years old. So this was an antique American, early American uh, farmhouse, and uh, we enjoyed that too. So we had a lot of unique experiences, good opportunities to share what the Lord's doing and hear what God's doing in a lot of our uh, family and friends' lives also. So thank you for your prayers. Good to be back. And uh, Lois said, let's not do that again, okay? (laughs) So I have to remember that next time. Thank you. Okay. Well, we can turn to the book of Esther for our final week in this book, at least in this series this time. Two weeks ago, we read the book. And I hope you all can remember uh, generally how the story goes. Um, Last week, Tim contrasted God and Haman for us, quite a contrast. And uh, I think that's a very interesting study in the book of Esther, very profitable. Uh, Today, we're going to consider Esther herself and her uncle Mordecai. Now, our goal today, why we're doing this, is to be impressed with their character. We're doing character studies here is to learn from these people's character. Um, I think it can motivate us. It can motivate us to cooperate with Christ as he is developing his own character in us. Um, We can reflect on Esther and Mordecai and say, I want to be like that. I want to be like those folks. Um, That can encourage us to rejoice, to submit to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives as he grows us each individually and all of us together. Well, character, I think, is best understood in the context of real life. So we're just going to move through the narrative here and pull out thoughts on Mordecai and Esther as we go. So to get a running start here in chapter one, you remember, uh, we learn much of the setting for the whole book. Um, It begins in the third year of the reign of King Ahasuerus, probably around 483 B.C. Ahasuerus throws this extravagant six-month 
long party and caps it off with a week of feasting. Uh, the last day of the feast, he is merry with wine, and he wants to show off how beautiful his wife, his queen, is. And so he sends to have Vashti, the queen, brought, and uh, she refuses to come. Kind of a damper on things after six months of partying and feasting, but... Uh, he gets very angry, and he consults with his legal experts of what to do with a disobedient wife like this, and uh, ends up signing a law that Vashti can never come into his presence again. Well, eventually, King Ahasuerus calms down and thinks of Vashti again, and then realizes, oh yeah, there's this law. So he needs a new queen. What's he going to do? So he discreetly asks his trustworthy friends to help him find a woman of excellent character. Um, is that the way you guys remember it from weeks ago when we read the story? <laughs> no, no, that's actually not what happened at all. Instead, his servants say, oh, yes, you need a queen. Well, the thing to do is collect all the beautiful young virgins we can find together into your harem, and then we'll give them a, a year-long of beauty treatments because they're not beautiful enough yet for you. And then uh, they can each have one night with you, and you can then decide which one you like best and make her the queen. Well, Ahasuerus thinks that's a great idea. So they proceed on that plan. And that brings us up to through uh, chapter 2 at verse 4. And so far, seeing as we are trying to find character to emulate, we may have a hard time <laughs> up to this point finding great role models. But that's about to change. Great character strong character, is particularly remarkable when it is surrounded by the lack of character, the kind of lack of character that seemed to be prevalent in the palace at that time. Uh, you'll remember that uh, when Haman became prominent, he didn't exactly lift the integrity of the court either, right? So against that backdrop, in verse 5 of chapter 2, we are introduced to Mordecai and a bit of his background. Chapter 2, verse 5 of the book of Esther. Now, there was at, at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem. And by the way, although you could read it either way, it would seem that it was Kish that was had been taken into exile from Jerusalem because otherwise Mordecai would probably be years old or something. Anyway, um, where were we? He'd been taken into exile from Jerusalem, Kish had with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we learn that Mordecai was a Benjamite. Uh, Mordecai's great-grandfather, Kish, who was not other Kish that may be rattling around in your head is the father of King Saul. That was like 600 years before this. So um, this is another Kish. Uh, was exiled with Jeconiah, who is also known as Jehoiakim. Exiled from Jerusalem. That took place in about 597 B.C., uh, 2 Kings 24, uh, verse 14. We can read a little bit about that. Uh, says, then he, that is Nebuchadnezzar, led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor. So just look at the class of people who were led away captive here. It's, I think, worth paying attention to. The uh, captains, mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, 
none remained except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiakim away into exile to to Babylon, also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land. He led them away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war, and these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. So Kish, at least, probably had a fairly high standing in uh, Israel at the time he was taken captive. So Mordecai came from a decent family, most likely. Um, Now, Ahasuerus, probably, uh, we've already talked a little bit about who was he and some of those issues, but going with what is most likely probable, um, he probably ruled from about 485 to 465 B.C., so at the beginning of chapter 2, we're about 115 to 120 years after Kish went into exile. Now, in verse 7, we are introduced to Esther. Esther was uh, Mordecai's cousin, and she was an orphan. And we don't really know much about the extended family, really, not anything more. But we see our first hint of Mordecai's character uh, here in that he took Esther, this orphan girl, as his own daughter. I think that's commendable. Now, moving on to verse 8. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So this is a pretty big uh, jump for Esther. Esther, she's just collected along with all these other girls, and now she's suddenly at the head of the line as far as Haggai's concerned. Um, what was it that got Haggai's attention? Well, we're not really told specifically. But I think it's safe to bet that when he's suddenly under a deluge of all these beautiful young ladies, that what set Esther apart was probably her character. Probably he discerned something in her that he didn't see. I think we can also see here the sovereignty of God that is prevalent just all through the whole book of Esther, his sovereign providence that I'm sure was involved as well. Verse 10, we read that Esther did not make her people know Excuse me, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. So here's the first place we learn of Esther's obedience. She was a good girl, all right? She had real respect and appreciation for Mordecai, and even when she was out of his sight, out of his control, she continued to um, obey him, do what he said. Proverbs 20.11 tells us that even children are known by the way they act whether their conduct is pure, and whether it is right. So I think that even as a child, she had been developing character all along. Verse 11, we read, Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. So Mordecai, on his part, demonstrated a real concern, a real love for this girl. Um, We're not told if other parents were doing the same kind of thing or not. All we know is Mordecai was. Um, Real expression of genuine fatherly concern. I think that was a real comfort to Esther as well. Jump down to verse 15. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. 
And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Hebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Esther knew who to trust. She knew how to discern and accept good advice. Well, I think that's a pretty strong indication of an absence of pride. A person who is proud has tends to look to themselves and what they think. Um, they have trouble even discerning what's good advice, let alone following it. If you're proud enough, somebody can give you good advice, and you can even understand that it's good advice, but you're not going to follow it because you're not the one who came up with it. So, well, that was the antithesis of Esther, okay? She saw good advice, and she accepted it. Esther was deposed. Seventh, uh, the king's seventh year, roughly three to four years after Vashti was deposed at this point in the story. And we read in chapter 2, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. Now, if this girl had any inclination at all towards pride, how could this not inflame it? She's now the queen. The king gave a banquet. It's Esther's banquet, right? <laughs> and it's a holiday for the 127 provinces. I mean, the whole, this is like Esther's holiday. Everything is all about Esther. If you wanted to, everything. You, Esther had that at this point. All right, um, you might remember Haman and how he reacted to the promotions he received from the king. It developed tremendous pride in him. Okay, verse nineteen, chapter two, verse nineteen. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. So I think we seem to have an answer here about how affected by pride Mordecai or um, Esther was. Esther obeyed Mordecai when her parents had died and Mordecai was raising her. You see that in verse 10. She continued to obey him after being taken into the harem, and now she's a queen and she's still obeying him. Okay? Thinking about. I think that's really <laughs> something worth stopping and thinking about. The most ostentatious, ostentatious and elaborate uh, circumstances have been thrown on this girl. Had no effect whatsoever with her relationship with Mordecai. May we be that kind of people that uh, to value our relationships with others and not be blinded by success or failure, no, no matter how extreme the direction. I think it's also worth reflecting that although Esther was a captive and she'd lost her parents, uh, she did not become bitter or rebellious toward God and, and, and towards other authority. People who are rebellious toward God often are also rebellious towards other authority. She obeyed her adopted father more character. Well, I think that's the kind of strength of character that contributed to her favor with Haggai in uh, verse 9, with everyone who saw her in verse 15, and with the king himself in verse 17. We're told three times there that she found favor with Choices from very young choices and continuing through all through our life. It's these choices that affect, eventually feed into and make up our character. They have a dramatic effect on our positions and our options in life. And more importantly, our choices and that resulting character 
matter for eternity. It matters who we are. Verse 21 of chapter 2. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands to inform the kings. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So now Mordecai has some position at the king's gate, and we're not told what his role is there, but uh, the fact that he's regularly there is going to be very important a little later in the story. Um, For now, we notice that Mordecai heard this plot and turned it in, revealed it, spoke up on behalf of the king. Um, I think we can see from that, Mordecai, that he was obeying the idea of what uh, Jeremiah had revealed from God. God told the people through Jeremiah back back when his grandfather Kish was being taken captive in that general time frame, uh, Jeremiah 29.7, God commanded that the exiles seek the, the good, the prosperity of the places where they were being exiled to. Well, Mordecai was doing that. He was obeying the Lord. Lasting favor from the Well, you would expect that a great honor and lasting favor from the king uh, would come for saving the king's life. So to me, it's actually striking how Esther handled this. Esther could have noticed that, hey, by now, the whole universe isn't all about me anymore. Esther's banquet is over. The holiday is gone. And, I mean, she's still queen and all, but she's not quite the center of attention that she was, probably. She could have taken credit. And how big a deal would that be, really? She could have said, you know, I, through my informants, I have found out this. Well, again, we see something about uh, her humility, her character. It'd be so easy to rationalize, too. Think about that. I'm the queen. I'm already in the best position to be doing stuff or whatever. And think of all the good, this extra oomph behind me of being the one who saved the king's life. Then think of all the good I can do. I can, whatever Mordecai might have gotten out of it, I can do it for him right? I'm not, not going to forget him. But no, she was scrupulous, humble and scrupulous about presenting herself merely as the messenger and Mordecai as the real hero. And it seems to me that on that seemingly tiny detail as to who she's giving credit to, the whole book turns on. We don't know when humbly denying our own self-interest may have remarkable benefits to many. We do know that when we are like Christ, and we are pleasing him that we are storing up treasures in heaven. And those three and four tells us to others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 tells us this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, <coughs> regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The queen, are other people really more important than her? Well, Here she was, still obeying Mordecai, humility of mind, regarding Mordecai as more important than herself. I think that's striking. Well, in chapter 3, which, by the way, of course, nothing came of it at all anyway at this point, right? So it got written down in the book, said, okay, Mordecai did whatever, but nothing happened. And again, God's sovereignty and providence and all of that. Let me see if you compare. In chapter 3, Esther's been queen for about five years, if you compare... uh, Chapter, uh, verse 7 with chapter 2, verse 16. And the king is now has now promoting Haman. Mordecai is still at the king's gate, and consequently, he could not avoid this issue of whether or not to bow down to him. 
We read in chapter 3, verse 2, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. So I think there's a question here. Would it have been sin for Mordecai to bow down to Haman? Um, that matter then was, if not, would it have been a sin to refuse to bow? Did he commit a sin here? <clears throat> well, I think just from the whole tenor of the entire book, it is clear that it would have been sin for Mordecai to bow to him. Relationship there, the reason he gives is that he is a Jew, and the precise relationship there is not told us. We've talked some about some possibilities in previous weeks. Um, but to me, the whole book makes no sense at all unless it is a sin for Mordecai to bow here. So that's my or free to have your own. <laughs> but we're still faced with a dilemma. Because Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, Haman decreed that all the Jews should be killed. So did Mordecai have any culpability in what Haman intended? Now, granted, Mordecai didn't know Haman was going to do that, but suppose he did. Suppose he knew that if I refuse to bow down, Haman's going to try to kill all the Jews. Should Mordecai have bowed? Suspense. A great evil like that. Suspense. The answer is no. <laughs> no. It's always right to do the right thing and leave the consequences to God. In this case, God brought about a great deliverance. Remember the three Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 3, we read about that. They told Nebuchadnezzar, Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, we are not going to serve your gods. And, of course, there they were sacrificing their own lives, but it's, the answer is the same. If it was their wives and children or the rest of the Jews, right is right, and our role is to obey God and let God deal with the results of that. And really, that is so freeing. It is so freeing to know that God is responsible for the consequences of our obedience. I recall, I used to say that a lot, um, a very freeing thing. It's not up to you. You don't have to manipulate people and circumstances. Your role is simply to obey God and trust him with what ensues. So after Haman's edict to destroy the Jews was announced, we have in chapter 4 this remarkable interchange between Esther and Mordecai. So we begin with Mordecai's reaction to the edict, chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. We see Esther's reaction to Mordecai's distress in verse 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came to her and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. A couple of months ago, so I'm not going to on this verse uh, on a Wednesday a couple of months ago, so I'm not going to go into a lot of uh, elaboration on it now, other than just to notice how greatly Esther loved Mordecai. If he's wearing sackcloth, she's writhing in great anguish. Okay? And that, without even knowing yet what's going on, all she knows is, he, something has happened to warrant him wearing sackcloth. So I think this really demonstrates how well she understood her true identity. She embraced her true identity wholeheartedly, even when it was painful. She was not blinded by five years of being the queen. She was still, first and foremost, a Jewess loyal to her adopted father. For us, too, loyalty to friends and family is a noble thing and a right thing. Um, and above all, 
we must be clear about our old who we are Adam and our new identity in Christ. That's who we really are, who we are in Christ. That's a permanent identity, one that cannot ever change who we are in Christ. And remembering we can love like Esther by the power of Christ in us to do that. That's part of who we are now. It's essential. So Mordecai and Esther have a conversation through Esther's servants. Mordecai tells Esther to go to the king and plead with him for her people. And Esther replies in verse 11, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court, (coughs) who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. In fact, important to notice here that the default, the norm, in fact, the law is death. There is an exception, but it is just that, exceptional. Earlier in Esther's queenship, she apparently had pretty frequent access to the king because she was able, she was able some way to alert the king in Mordecai's name about this plot to kill the king. That access doesn't exist anymore. It's been 30 days since she's seen the king at all. Um, verse, chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the, for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. Whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So Mordecai gives several arguments here, and I think it's really beneficial to, to look at them closely. So on the one hand, there's the concrete reality that Esther brought up of risking her life on the king's whim, especially when he doesn't seem particularly well disposed towards her at the moment, hasn't expressed any interest in her in a month. But on the other hand, Esther is confronted with this opposing reality, God's sovereign control of everything and a certain judgment on herself for power. As Jesus said in Luke 9.24, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, some people in Esther's shoes might have flattered themselves that they had, from what we mean by their own ability, their own qualities, their own superiority. From what we know of Esther's character, pride like that had no grip on it. I think Mordecai's final argument... (laughs) that God seems to have placed her where she is just for this particular point in time, for this particular purpose of defending her people from this attack. I think that that argument really resonated. She had likely often wondered, what in the world is God doing? Why am I here? (laughs) How did I end up as queen? Why does God have me in this place? Now, I think we should not overlook the faith of Mordecai that's evident in this exchange as well. He loved Esther as a daughter. It would be natural for him to send a message to Esther and say, all right, Esther, lay low. Don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. Save his Jews. Stay low, right? And at least he could save his adopted daughter, try to protect her. But instead, he flagrantly (laughs) asks her to risk her life walking in on the king on something that really seems like it should result in her death immediately. Well, I think we're talking about a man in Mordecai who understood God's relationship with Israel and loved the Lord above all. 
If we want to please the Lord, we must likewise, likewise remember God's relationship with and his plan for Israel. And by the Holy Spirit working in us, we can also be humble, wise, to recognize why he puts us where he has. We can courageously and faithfully represent him. We can use our position to promote his will that we love him to the extent that we are willing to sacrifice all else that we love for Christ's sake. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's exactly what Esther was facing. So I think, <coughs> excuse me, Esther's response rates among the great statements in all of history. Verse 16 of chapter 4. Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther, Esther risked her life based on her discernment of God's will without any certainty that God would protect her. At least when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did that, they had three of them to stand together and die together. Esther's doing this alone. She humbly sought the Lord beforehand and then proceeded with what she believed to be the right thing. May we likewise value discerning and following God's will above even our very life. So in chapter 5, we see that Esther did go to the king, and in God's providence, the king spared Esther. She invited Ahasuerus and Haman to a feast, and then that, that Shaman to come to another feast the next day in order to that, that she would then tell them what this was all about. And in chapter 6, King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus cannot sleep. Then he has the records of his reign read. He's reminded of Mordecai saving his life. And he orders Haman to honor Mordecai. We don't have time to dwell on Mordecai's humbleness here, who after receiving the highest honors that Haman could possibly invent, because he thought he was a Bennett himself, he was so unaffected that he simply went back to the king's gate, sat down and was doing the same thing he did. Haman, can you imagine? Haman comes along, makes him do all this, and then Mordecai, when it's all done, and Haman runs off grieving, Mordecai just goes back to the king's gate, goes back to work, totally unaffected. So we'll pick up the reading at uh, chapter 7 and verse 1. And let's notice in the life of her people here, yet her eloquent boldness as she pleads for her life in the life of her people and accuses Haman to his face. This is quite a, quite a speech. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, and my people as my request. <clears throat> For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Wow. <laughs> that's just, I think that's just awesome. Then King Ahasuerus said, Esther, where, who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. She's pointing out the king's right-hand man, the guy that um, the king had given his signet ring to. I mean, this guy was second to the king. This was a very bold moment. 
Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. I don't think this could be an easy speech for Esther at all, but the Lord enabled her to speak brilliantly from her humble heart, and the king sided rather strongly with Esther at the end of this, right? When Haman got up that morning, he was thinking this is going to be Haman's best day ever. Mordecai was going to be hanged, feast with the king and the queen, all his problems were over, right? In the providence of God, it quickly progressed to Haman's worst day ever. He's honoring him there in the morning, and he has to honor Mordecai. He's not hanging him, he's honoring him. And then he's rushed off to this, and quickly, in the providence of God, it became Haman's last day ever. <laughs> so he was hanged on his own gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, and Queen Esther exposed him. So let's jump down to chapter 8 and verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. You remember the significance of extending the golden scepter? It gives us the context of what was going on here. I think it's often <laughs> overlooked that Esther risked her life in the same way a second time going to the king without being summoned. It's the only the golden scepter. That's what that is talking about. It's the only way to avoid the law. Once again, the law that you walk in on the king, you die. Now, granted, this time she probably had some reasonable hope that she would be accepted favorably, but still it was a genuine risk. That was the law. And really, neither secular history nor the book of Esther gives strong encouragement that Ahasuerus' character is dependable. Sometimes, after tremendous victories like, like Esther had just had over Haman, sometimes it falls. Sometimes it's easy to rest on your laurels, not run any more risks. I think it speaks very highly of Esther that she remained both humble and focused on the plight of her people, God's people, and was willing to risk herself. Well, the result was Mordecai's edict, which restored the Jews' hope for survival. He sent it on the 23rd day of the third month, so there was plenty of time for the Jews to for the big battle, which would be nine months later, on the 13th day of the 12th month, verse 9 and verse 12 of chapter 8. So let's read at verse 15 of chapter 8. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Compare Haman's law, chapter 3, verse 15, to Mordecai's law. Haman issued his decree then sat down to drink with the king while the whole city was in confusion. Mordecai issued his decree, and then he went out from the presence of the king, and the city rejoiced. Haman sought to indulge himself. Mordecai sought the good. When we serve others in whatever position or resources we have, because we love God who loved us first, that pleases God. Matthew five sixteen. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Instructions from our Lord. Well, in chapter 9, we see the happy victory of the Jews and the establishment of the uh, celebration of Purim. And the book concludes in chapter 10 and verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Mordecai was raised to a dizzying height, a height that caused his predecessor to lose perspective, fall 
dramatically. Mordecai understood why Esther was put in her position, um, and he was able to apply the same truth to himself. You know, sometimes it's easy to observe somebody else and give them advice and see what they should do and how the Lord's working. But it can be different when it's yourself, right? But he was able to discern that same thing for himself. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 14, I'll read it again, what he told Esther. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty, same as this. No doubt Mordecai recognized that God sovereignly placed him as second to the king, not for Mordecai's own pleasure, advancement, um, personal gain, but for a purpose. So he was not silent. He spoke up for his people, as we read here in the last verse of this book. May we also discern why the Lord has us where we are, what his purpose is, and no matter how high or low we ever find ourselves, Use that position according to God's heart for his glory and not focused on our own betterment. Just to conclude here quickly, uh, in regard, or I say I regard both Esther and Mordecai as great heroes of the faith. I think the tone of the whole book uh, is consistently presenting both Esther and Mordecai as faithful believers choosing what is right in the face of extreme pressure to the contrary and both when the stakes are very high and when the stakes seem insignificant. They were both faithful in little, and they were both faithful. Few in Scripture have as much written about them without any uh, wrongdoing recorded on their part. They displayed only godly character in everything. So I hope that the godly examples that we have in these two folks uh, can really inspire us in pursuing conformity with the character of Christ right now in the present. Really, that's the only way to adequately prepare for future hard choices. And when any of us do face hard choices, the Lord can give us courage and discernment as we remember the examples of Mordecai. Our Lord and our Savior, we thank you for these great examples that you recorded for us in Mordecai and Esther. We thank you for how you worked through them, how you used them. Lord, we thank you for your work in all of us. We thank you that you have a plan that cannot be thwarted. And Lord, we trust you. We want to grow in our trust of you and in being like you and sharing your character. We thank you that you are doing that work. Lord, we want to cooperate with your spirit in us doing that. Make us like yourself in unity together. As we were thinking about this morning, we rejoice in love to you for the foundation for this great character of yours in us. And that is your death on the cross for us how you have saved us, and how through your death, your life now, resurrection life in us, you are making us like yourself. We look forward to when we are perfected and glorified with you forever. With that hope, we go forward now from this place this week. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name.